So we've read then from 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're introduced to a group of people we're probably not altogether familiar with called the sons of the prophets. In verse 1, the sons of the prophets say to Elisha, see the place uh, where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. So who are these people? Well, they're a group of people there in the Old Testament who love the Lord God and they seem to be led by whoever God's great prophet is at the time. So at some point they're under Samuel, then they're under Elijah's care, and here in 2 Kings chapter 6 they are under Elisha's care, uh, the prophet who followed on from Elijah. And it seems that they probably lived in camps, sort of commune style, just living together and working the land and living off the land. And it's likely that under the great prophet that they were sort of under their charge, as they put it here, we are under your charge, that they learned God's word from the prophet. And having learned God's word from the prophet, they then take that out to others in Israel and preach it and teach it to others. So they're guys then who live in a commune and study God's word and then take it out to others. Almost like um, an Old Testament version of a Bible college, really, I guess. And like many Bible college students, they're poor. <laughs> and a few chapters back, um, if you were to just look later on tonight, if, if you're interested, you'll find them scavenging for food. Um, just whatever is there, whatever we find on the land, literally we're scavenging for it and would all bring it back to the camp and just bung it in the big pot. It's literally a one-pot meal. But there's no recipe being followed. You, you find it, you throw it in. Um, you get some kind of insight into their poverty when it's an absolute disaster because somebody throws in some poisonous stuff. Obviously, they're not aware that it's poisonous. They, you know, they're trying to help. They're scavenging like everybody else. But what they throw in turns out to be poisonous and and that just ruins the whole one pot. And that's everybody's meal, you see. And, and there's nothing else in the larder. There's nothing else in the fridge, so to speak. And so they're very poor. They, there's nothing in reserve. And that's a disaster to them. And so God graciously bestows a miracle. And essentially the poison in the pot goes. And they've all got something to eat again. And here's more signs of their poverty here in this chapter. Again in verse 1, the sons of the prophets say to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Then verse 2, let's go to the Jordan and each of us there will get a log and we'll make a place for us to dwell there. So they want to build a bigger place, like a bigger theological school, but it's not going to be a really nice one. It's essentially going to be a log cabin. Here's no Taj Mahal or some great brick Baptist chapel. It's just everyone chop down a log. Um, we'll kind of strap them all together or something. I'm sure that a few of them knew what they were doing. And we'll have a great big log shed and we'll all live there. It's just we need a bigger one than we got now. And we can't really afford anything more than a log shed. So let's go and do that. Let's go somewhere where there's plenty of wood available down by the Jordan. We'll all get our axes and chop trees down and we'll build something bigger than we've got. Another sign of their poverty, they do it to themselves. You know, they don't get the contractors in and, and pay a load of blokes to do all the hard manual labor. That's them. 
And so they're taking time out of their study and probably studying and working and, and doing it all um, so that they can have a place that's more suitable for their swelling numbers. And then there's verse 5 as well. Uh, what happens there? Uh, one of them is felling a log, so he's got his axe and, you know, he's kind of working with all of the others to build this great big log cabin thing. And then his axe head falls into the water, that's the Jordan River. Now, if that was me and you, I'd probably think, ah, oh, you know, that's a bit of a pain. Gonna have to go and buy another one, trip to B&Q, 30, 40, 50 quid. I'm not sure how much axes are these days. You know, it's probably 30, 40, 50 quid we don't want to spend. But if we have to spend it, we probably can muster it. Maybe not. But I think for a lot of us, we probably could muster that money if we absolutely had to and there was some major project on, um, axe has fallen in the water, the axe head has come off, pain, but it's not a disaster, just go and buy another one. Not particularly what I would choose to spend 50 quid on, but just go and buy another one. But for this man, and this is again a sign of their poverty, he can't just go and buy another one. Um, and so it's a disaster. And, and he uses the word, alas, alas, my master, alas, Elisha, because it was borrowed. And so not only have I lost this axe, and I can't afford to buy another one, but worse than that, it's not even mine. It belonged to somebody else, and I cannot afford to replace it. And I think just in passing, these are not the main lessons tonight, but just in passing, I think there's a couple of things to learn there. Like, number one, he could have taken the attitude... Great, access falling in the water. That means I haven't got to do all the hard manual labor to build the log cabin. I could just go to study and pray all day and leave the hard work to the others. But that's not his attitude at all, is it? And so there's a challenge to us there. You know, are we involved? Here's a man who wants to be involved in the work. And when he cannot be involved in the work, he's not rejoicing, he's upset about it. You see, here is a man with a heart for God's work. And he wants to be involved in God's work, but he can't, and that upsets him. And so that's a challenge to us. Where are we with that? Do we want to be involved in God's work? Or are we sort of quite glad sometimes maybe we've got a bit of an excuse not to be? And there's another challenge in that his attitude could have been, oh, access fall in the water. Well, I'm very thankful it wasn't mine. <laughs> uh, and we just briefly touched on this morning that God's law tells us we're to love God with all our heart, might, and soul, and our neighbor as ourselves. Some people interpret this verse like the guy whose axe it was is going to sue him or something like that. And I'm not sure about that. I don't see any sign of that here. I think he's probably just borrowed it from a friend and he feels bad that he's lost his friend's axe and he can't afford to replace it. And that grieves his heart. And so there's a lesson here that we should love our neighbor and treat their stuff and their things better than we would treat our own things. And I do sometimes try to teach that to my kids, but I'm not altogether sure it goes in. But that's one of the small lessons here just in passing. But what I really want us to concentrate on is how much God cares about this situation. You see, they're building a log cabin. They're all using their axes. They're all chopping down trees and... One guy's axe is broken and the axe head's fallen in the river and it's obvious enough that the 
the river is perhaps murky and he's not sure exactly where it is and it's deep and it's flowing quick and he can't just go in and get it and so the thing is lost and, and so, thing, so forth and so on. And God produces through Elisha a miracle to resolve this situation. And we end up with a floating axe head that the man then takes out of the water and so he can carry on helping in the work. That's what happens. Elisha throws in a stick and the axe head floats up and the man takes the axe head, presumably binds it back onto the handle and carries on with the work. And I just want to put a question out there and it's just for you to think about very briefly, get the mind whirring, um, not necessarily to answer out loud. And it's this. Is this one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible? Is this one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible? And what I hope you're thinking is, of course not. <laughs> like, you know, think of the bigger, more splendid, great, almost, if you like, cinematic miracles that you've got in the Bible. Like the plagues on Egypt. Imagine how amazing some of them were to behold. Just all the waters and rivers of Egypt turning into blood. Or think of the parting of the Red Sea. Imagine what that would be to behold. Just waters going whoosh on both sides. And then millions of people just walking through the middle. Astonishing. Amazing. What about the opening up of the earth to swallow up the rebellious Dathan and Abiram? Or the fire and brimstone falling down from heaven to destroy the wicked places of Sodom and Gomorrah? What about Jesus walking on the water? Imagine witnessing that. That would be incredible. What about 5,000 people being fed with just a few small loaves and fishes? Or the resurrection of our Lord from the dead? All these grand spectacles. And then we might say, well, with all due respect, yes, this is a miracle, but it's, it's just a floating axe head. It's not the part of the Red Sea. It's not the plagues on Egypt. Why would you ask whether this, therefore, is one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible? And then, there's not just the fact that it doesn't really sort of stand up against other miracles in terms of cinematic splendor, but there's also this, that it doesn't really seem to compare to other great Bible miracles in its kind of significance in the flow of the Bible. It doesn't seem to be particularly significant in terms of what God is doing in the history of the world and in the history of redemption. Whereas those other miracles I've just mentioned are really significant. So take, for example, the plagues on Egypt. What were they all about? They weren't just grand spectacle. They were about getting God's people, Israel, Abraham's offspring, out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. They were all about the veracity of God and God showing that he keeps his word and he does what he says. They were all about bringing the people of Israel into the promised land so that the Messiah could come into the world through that nation. It was also a sort of resolution to a humanitarian crisis, one of the worst that's ever happened. It would be all over the news if it was happening today, wouldn't it? People in bondage and suffering so terribly under the hand of a pharaoh. Huge significance to those miracles. Take then the swallowing up of Dathan and Abiram when the earth opens up and swallows 
those rebels. That was really significant, I think, because they were rebelling against Moses. They were saying, well, why should we all listen to you? You're not the only one that God has anointed. We're all the people of God. And people were siding with them. And unless that tension was resolved somehow, you possibly, I think, it's not unfair to say, could have quite easily resulted in a civil war in Israel. And then take Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire and brimstone falling from heaven upon them. What great wickedness was at play in those cities. And if God had not dealt with it, you could see that just almost as it does from city to city and land to land to day. You could see those evil ways just spreading like a cancer across the world. And so God cuts that cancer out, almost like with a scalpel knife, just takes it clean away. Jesus walking on the water wasn't just a show to sort of gratify people's senses, but he was demonstrating his deity. That he is the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. And his resurrection was absolutely vital to the gospel and our salvation and, and to show to us that our assurance in the gospel is real. He died for our sins and he rose again to demonstrate that he successfully completed that work and we can be sure in him and trust in him that just as he was raised from the dead, so will we be. And where he is, we will be also with him for all of eternity. Hugely significant miracles. And if they hadn't taken place, then who knows what would have happened and how the history of redemption might have been significantly different and impoverished. But this is just an axe head. And let's face it, if this guy has to sit on the sidelines while everybody else builds the wooden hut, it's still going to get built. You know, nothing terrible is going to happen. They'll still have somewhere new to live and they'll still listen to the prophet and they'll still disseminate the word and, and all that will have happened is that somebody's one act short. That's it. No other consequences. No other fallout. Does it really matter? And therefore, why would this mad preacher ask the question, is this one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible? Let me put this to you. I think this is one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible for its very unremarkableness. Because it is so unremarkable. All that happens is an axe head floats. Nothing particularly grand or significant is at hand or at stake. And yet God provides a miracle to make the axe head float and the man picks it up and gets on with his work. And what I think is remarkable about that is this. That the God who oversaw and performed all the other miracles that I've just been mentioning, God who created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, isn't he too big? Isn't he too important? Isn't he too sort of grand and far removed from the likes of me and you and this little guy with his axe head that doesn't really matter in the great grand scheme of things, isn't God too big and too important to care about things like that? <laughs> and, and that's how the great people of this world think, isn't it? Some things just beneath them. Some things just too small for them to take cognizance of. Let me give you an example. In a job that I used to have in an organization that I worked for some years ago, I booked a room um, with a colleague because we needed to speak to some customers of the organization in that room. 
And rooms were quite hard to come by. There wasn't enough of them. And so you had to book them well in advance. And so I booked them. I got a call from reception to say the customers are here. And so I said to my colleague, let's just go check the room, make sure it's open, that we don't need to get a key from anywhere, that it's empty and prepared and all of that. And then I'll go and get the customers. So we go to this room, open the door, and there's a guy sat in the corner. And I kind of like look at him and shut the door. And I say to my colleague, there's a guy sat in the corner there. He looks like the deputy director of the organization. Don't worry, says my colleague. My colleague's a very brash guy. Just get in there and boot him out, whoever he is. You know, we've booked the room. We need it. Okay. So I open the door, and I'm waiting for this guy to look up and take notice of me, but he's on his phone. And I think very purposefully, he doesn't even notice that there's anybody standing in the door. I mean, he's got peripheral vision, but he's just ignoring that. And purposely, I think, not noticing that I'm there. And I'm waiting for him to kind of look so I can say, really sorry, you know, customer meeting. But he just doesn't look. And I'm peering at his name badge, and I can just about make it out, I think. And... I'm becoming more convinced this is the deputy director. So I close the door again. I said, Dave, that's my colleague, Dave. He's not even looking at me. I'm fairly sure it's him. Oh, oh Alex, just boot him out. I said, I'll tell you what, you're a bit better at stuff like that than I am. If you do that, and I'll go get the customers. So I go get the customers and come back. And for the first time in my life, Dave is looking a bit sheepish. He's never looked like that before in his life. So what happened, Dave? I'll tell you afterwards. So we have the customer meeting in a different room that we did manage to find, thankfully. It was quite difficult and really embarrassing, just wandering around with these customers in tow, looking for a room. Um, anyway, we have the meeting. The customers go, what happened, Dave? It was the deputy director. Oh, what happened? He said, I walked in there. I said, really sorry, you booked this room. Please can you go and find another one? He put down his phone. He looked up at me and he said, do you know who I am? I'm the deputy director of this organization. Go and find another one. I said, oh, what happened then, Dave? He said, I told him my name was Alex Hutter and went and found another one. <laughs> but the point is this, you see. That deputy director didn't care about our problems, didn't care we booked the room and we needed the room and that the customers were coming and even that they were his customers ultimately and we needed to speak to them and, you know, make the organization look good. He was just too far above all of that. Who cares? Your problem. You're small. You're nobody. I'm the deputy director. That's who I am. You're not. Go and find another one. And this miracle tells us God isn't like that. He's a man who ultimately his problem isn't all that significant. It kind of is to him. But it's not in terms of the history of the whole Bible and everything that God is doing in this world. And yet God doesn't say, too big to deal with that, sorry. You know, your problem, bigger things on my hands, your problem, nothing to do with me. God graciously and mercifully sends a miracle to deal with something that isn't all that significant. Don't you think that's amazing? I think that's amazing. And for that reason, this is one of my favorite miracles in the whole of the Bible. You see, God's not like that deputy director. He's our father and our friend. And for those of us who parents, you know, our children come to us, don't they, with little problems. Like, you know, a bleeding finger or a headache or homework that's difficult. What do we say to them? Oh, I've got more important things, you know. I've got an important job. Like, Take your bleeding finger somewhere else. You know, who cares about your headache? Um, 
Go and learn your homework on your own. No, if we're parents and we love our kids, we take time out. Oh, let me look at that finger. Let's put a plaster on it, a bit of whatever that cream is, you know. Um, give them a hug and a kiss and send them on their way so that they learn not to be overly concerned about such things. Headache, well, how long have you had it? Let's go to the medicine cabinet. Let's give you something. Homework that's too difficult. Can't help you right now, but oh, let me have a look later and I'll see if I can remember how to do algebra and I'll, I'll figure it out and help you. We enter into their cares, you see, because we love them and we're their parents. God's our father and our friend. And he enters into our small concerns and he enters into our small cares. And it doesn't matter that he's also governing the whole universe and upholding all things by the might of his power. He, he takes time, as it were. And gives it to us and gives us his attention. The Bible says he, he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He's counted the number of the hairs on our heads. And his eye is on the man who's lost his little axe head. And it doesn't altogether matter that much. And I think there's also something to learn just by observing how the miracle takes place. Like, how does that happen? Just look at verse 5 with me, if you have your Bible open. As one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And so this comes about because the man, whose name we don't even know, um, who's lost his axe head, and it's not altogether that significant, he cries out to Elisha. He says, Alas, my master, Elisha! Look what's happened here, Elisha. Now, Elisha is an important prophet in his own right. He's involved with kings and state affairs. Now, just within the surrounding chapters here, we see him conversing frequently with the king of Israel. Uh, we see him involved with Naaman the Syrian, this famous general, this famous warrior. Uh, here's a man then who's sort of not just a prophet with a bunch of nobodies sort of building a log hut and He's a man of state. He's a man of affairs. He's a man of importance. He's a man who moves in high places as well as being here with these men whose names we don't even know. And yet, this nameless, one of the sons of the prophets who's lost his axe head, seems to have every confidence in Elisha. Alas, my master. Alas, Elisha. Look at this. Now, I wouldn't have that confidence in the deputy director of the organization I used to work for. Just based on that one incident, I wouldn't be confident that, you know, if something small had gone wrong in my line of work, that I could call out to the deputy director and he cared. I think to myself, I'm more likely to get a clip around the ear and told to go away and cannot remember who he is, you know, stop bothering me with such petty things. But this guy knows he can go to Elisha with confidence. And in my mind, that's probably based on past experience, isn't it? These men, they seem to be intimately acquainted with Elisha. They know him. They, 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 they say we're under your charge. They've had prior experience of him. And so it's based on that prior experience that this man knows he can call out to Elisha the prophet and, and Elisha the prophet will care. And so there's a lesson for us in that. We ought to know based on prior experience, that we can trust in God. Because we know him. And we've had past experience of his care in our lives and things he's done for us before. 
times he's listened to us, times we've cried out to him, times we've cried out to him with all kinds of concerns and he's stepped into our lives and helped us through. That should build confidence in who God is and the fact that he cares and the fact that he's concerned. You see, we don't always have that faith in God, do we? Sometimes when things are difficult and hard in life, we might be tempted to unbelief. Not the unbelief that says maybe God doesn't exist. I think perhaps most of us know that he does exist and we're convinced of that. Not the unbelief that says God cannot help because he just lacks the power or he lacks the ability. Again, we know that he can. We know that he made everything. We know that all power is his. But sometimes the unbelief that we have is the kind of unbelief that says probably just won't be interested. And astonishingly, that was the kind of unbelief that the Israelites often had. Even when God had literally just rescued them from Egypt and opened up the Red Sea and they all go across. Do you remember what they say? There they are then in the wilderness and there's no food and there's nothing to drink. And what do they conclude? Oh, God just brought us here so we can all starve to death and die of thirst. What? God just sent plagues on Egypt. And opened up the Red Sea and took you across. Like, why would you conclude that? But that's how we think sometimes, isn't it? This is too small. God just won't care about this. God sent his son to die for you. He's loved you with an everlasting love. He came down from heaven to earth. To get on a cross and take the punishment for your sin. And the logic of faith goes like this. It's expressed by Paul in Romans 8.32. He says, look. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Look, if, if God has done the most difficult, arduous thing of all for you, gave his son from heaven to earth for you, of course you listen to in all these other things. Like, why would he not? I think God just being careful and mindful and gracious over the intimate details of our lives is so wonderfully and gloriously portrayed in this little incident that really doesn't seem to matter altogether that much. So have you got things that perhaps don't altogether seem to matter that much in the light of other things that are going on in the world today? I know there's been a pandemic and we've had Brexit and there's a cost of living crisis and fuel is going up and and all these problems afflicting the nation. And does God care about the little things going on in your life? Yes. Yes. Yes, he does. And so what are we to do? We're to go to God. The man goes to Elisha, doesn't he? He goes to Elisha. He says, alas, my master. He finds him. and says, alas, my master. He was borrowed. So he not only has faith in Elisha, but he goes to him and he speaks to him and he cries out to him. And he tells him what the problem is. And that's in verse 6, isn't it? The man of God said, where did it fall? And then the guy who's lost his axe head shows him the place. So they have a conversation together about it. I think that's quite interesting. You know, Elisha's about to perform a miracle and make the axe head float. Does he really need to know exactly where it fell? Why does he ask that question? But they're conversing about it. And I think that's lovely, isn't it? And that speaks to how 
we should really interact with God about the difficulties and troubles of our lives. Does God really need to know? Does he really need us to tell him and talk to him and explain things to him? No, he knows everything. He knows everything that's going on in your life and everything that's happened to you and all the good things and all the bad things. And yet in prayer, he wants us to open up our hearts and trust him and disclose our problems and difficulties and talk to him. I think you see something of that in that incident when um, the Assyrians come up against Hezekiah in Judea. Do you remember that? Um, Essentially, the Assyrians sent this dreadful letter blaspheming God saying, you know, we've destroyed all the other surrounding nations and their gods couldn't help them and you're much smaller and who's your God anyway? Those other gods didn't help their people. Your God won't help you. You're stuffed, unlucky. Just bow to us because you've basically had it. And Hezekiah gets really upset about this, not just because him and his people are in danger, but because he loves God and God is being blasphemed. And do you remember he takes that letter and he goes up to the temple? Do you recall what he does? He gets the letter out and he opens it up and he spreads it on the floor. He says, look at that, God. Does he need to spread it on the floor? Is it like God can't see the letter unless he rolls the thing out and and, and tells God directly about it? Of course God knows. Hezekiah belongs to God, and he's talking to God, and he's sharing the problem. He's talking about the difficulty. This is really simple stuff, isn't it? But you do that. You just get before God and and recount to him the issues and the problems and the difficulties of the day and the week and the situation and all that's happening. God listens, and he cares. And his heart's desire is that, as he says in Peter, cast all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. Cast all your cares upon him. Tell him. Pour out your heart. Because he cares for you. Now if you're speaking mainly to the saints really. Those of us who know God and belong to God and have trusted in Christ. But there might be some here tonight who you're not a Christian. And you haven't trusted in Christ as your saviour and repented of your sin. Let me speak to you for a little while before we close. I think there's some lessons here for you. Now, sometimes preachers come to this passage and they kind of see it all as allegory. You know, the axe head represents fallen human nature and the Jordan sort of represents sin and there's our nature falling into the murkiness of sin and then the stick that's cast in, well, that's made of wood and the cross is made of wood and therefore that represents the cross and, and all this kind of Um, sort of allegory. Now, I'm not sure I see it quite like that, but that said, there's definite parallels, okay? There's definite sort of analogies, if not allegories, about the way that God just deals with this man here and also the way that God deals with sinners. And I think the analogy is really, God deals in grace, here with this man who's lost his axe head, and God deals in grace with sinners. And so there's analogies, if not allegories. Some of you might not care about that, (laughs) but hermeneutics are reasonably important to me. So anyway, that aside, let's just look at some of the analogies between what happens here and how that might be relevant to you as somebody who does not yet belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's a man... And he's lost his axe head, and it's fallen into the murky river. 
and he can't see where to get it and he can't go in and it's running too fast and he can't get it back and he, he's really worried about the consequences but God cares, okay? God cares as we've seen. And then there's you. And I'm not saying again that this is allegory but whether it's allegory or not, you are. If you're not a Christian, you are sunk in sin, okay? And that's a serious thing. That's a more serious thing than losing an axe head that belongs to a friend. The far more serious thing. The consequences for this man is probably he can't be involved in the work anymore and probably his friend will be upset. And again, the consequences of sin are far more serious than that. God is upset with sin. He's angry with sin. And hell exists and hell is real. And God sends sinners who are unrepentant and unsaved. God judges sinners and he sends them to hell. So the consequences for you are far more serious than the consequences were for this man. But here's good news. God cared for this man even though the consequences weren't all that serious. Don't you think that God will care about you and your situation when the consequences are far more serious. Not just an upset friend and you can't involve in the building of a big log shed. But hell. An eternity there. If God cares about the lesser, he certainly cares about the greater. And then there's this. Just to concentrate on this point. The man was upset because his axe head was borrowed. It wasn't his. It belonged to somebody else. And listen to your friend. There's a sense in which your life is borrowed. It's not your own. God made you, and he made you for himself. Not to live for yourself and your own pleasure and just one day to the next, going through life aimlessly, doing whatever pleases you that day. But God made me for himself. To love him and to serve him, to give my life to him, my heart to him, to do everything to his honor and all to his glory. And what have you done with this life that is borrowed from God? Have you spent it wisely? you lived it for him or have you just drowned it in the river of sin so to speak and the fact that it's borrowed is serious isn't it because it's not to some friend that you'll give account to yourself but to the almighty God who is the just judge of all the earth and yet again God stepped in and he performed that miracle for this little man who just lost a little accent and it wasn't altogether that serious or important. And so God caring much more for the more serious, bigger things in life as well. Has stepped in and done something you can benefit from. Elisha steps into this situation, he just throws a stick in and up floats the axe head. That didn't really cost him anything. There's a stick, take it off a tree, throw it in, up floats the axe head, job done. God's done something that cost him a great deal to resolve your problem of sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, his only begotten son whom he loved. The darling of heaven. The angels worshipped him. And he had all glory and honor and praise in heaven. And all satisfaction and all joy. He came into this world and was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he went to the cross Bearing our sin, bearing your sin, if you're trusting him, and if you repent of your sin. 
and ask him to save you. God has taken notice. And God has done something to save the likes of me and you. But I just want to point you in closing to verse 7. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> Look at that with me. So, Elisha's done the miracle. He's thrown the stick in. The axe is floating. The axe head's floating. Iron doesn't normally float, as we all know. And then Elisha says, take it up. Pick it up. <laughs> and to me, that's interesting. What's he saying that for? You know, like, the guy has said, oh, Elisha, Elisha. The axe head's in there. I've lost it. And there's a disaster. And it wasn't mine. And it was borrowed. And so Elisha comes in, throws in the stick. The thing floats up. And the man must just be standing there looking at it. Kind of going, you know, because he knows that iron doesn't normally float. He's just standing there, gawping at the thing. Astonished. <laughs> and so Elisha has to say, well, you know, pick it up then. <laughs> He's not going to stay there forever. <laughs> you know, pick it up before it sinks again kind of a thing. I'm not going to stand here just making it float for the rest of my life. Pick it up, man. <laughs> and so uh, the man presumably learns the lesson. Oh, yeah goes in and gets it and picks it up and, and now he's got it. And there's a lesson in that as well, isn't there? You see, are you just gawping at the gospel? You just come to church and, and you hear the gospel and you know all about it and there it is, this sort of story that Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago and, and died for sinners. Oh, that's very nice. Pick it up. <laughs> you know? Take hold of it. Cry out to the Lord. Lord, I'm in sin and you've died for sinners and I'm so thankful for that. Lord, save me. Pick it up. It's not going to stay there forever. Respond to God while he's speaking to your heart. Before it's too late. Before you die. Imagine just dying, gawping at the gospel. Now pick it up. Take hold of it. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved.